Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. You're listening to Brave New Planet, a podcast about amazing new technologies that could dramatically improve our world. Or, if we don't make wise choices, could leave us a lot worse off. Utopia or dystopia? It's up to us. In the Zambales Mountains on the island of Luzon in the Philippines, there lies a volcano named Mount Pinatubo. For five centuries, it had lain dormant. But on Saturday, June 15, 1991, it erupted, causing one of the most cataclysmic events of the 20th century. Torrential rain has mixed with volcanic ash to form a gray mud covering vast areas of the northern Philippines. The ash falls up to 700 kilometers from Mount Pinatubo. Nearly 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide were hurled into the stratosphere. The effects of the eruption were felt around the world. In the following 15 months, average global temperature dropped by roughly one degree Fahrenheit. Why? Because the sulfur dioxide released by the volcano reflected back a fraction of the sun's energy, preventing it from reaching the Earth. The notion that huge volcanoes might affect the weather is actually an old one. Ben Franklin proposed that the severe winter of 1783-84 was triggered by a massive eruption in Iceland the previous summer. In 1965, inspired by the volcano theory, science advisors to President Lyndon Johnson proposed developing technology to pump sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere to offset global warming. 
But the idea didn't go far, because they had no good way to test it. Then, in 1991, Mount Pinatubo ran a test for us. It seemed to confirm the hypothesis. The proposal started to gain attention. Point is this, if the problem gets bad enough to do something about, well, don't you want to have something to do? The idea of that is to essentially mimic nature, which is what happens when a volcano blows, right. a big volcano blows. That's Stephen Dubner, who touted the idea in his 2008 book, Super Freakonomics, as a quick fix for global warming. In politics, the idea attracted strange bedfellows, including former Republican Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, Texas Republican and climate science skeptic Lamar Smith, and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. It even made it into the Netflix comedy show The Fix, where comedian D.L. Hughley recommended blowing up a volcano to save the world. So let's find some volcano in the middle of the ocean far away from civilization and blow it the F up. The idea... Well, not blowing up volcanoes, but spreading sulfur particles to decrease solar radiation is a kind of climate intervention that some people call solar geoengineering. It's gotten enough traction that the U.S. National Research Council organized a scientific committee to study it. And it's not just theoretical. Some Harvard scientists are planning to launch an experimental balloon to start learning how to hack the planet. Today's big question. With the climate crisis becoming more and more desperate, should we get ready to alter the atmosphere of planet Earth? Solar geoengineering. Can it protect us from climate change? Do we need it? And what could possibly go wrong? My name is Eric Lander. I'm a scientist who works on ways to improve human health. I helped lead the Human Genome Project, and today I lead the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. In the 21st century, powerful technologies have been appearing at a breathtaking pace related to the internet, artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, and more. They have amazing potential upsides. But we can't ignore the risks that come with them the decisions aren't just up to scientists or politicians. Whether we like it or not, we, all of us, are the stewards of a brave new planet. This generation's choices will shape the future as never before. Coming up on this episode of Brave New Planet, Blocking the Sun, we'll talk to one of the leading proponents of the technology. So solar geoengineering can with total confidence, and this is not an overstatement, restore temperatures to pre-industrial. We'll hear from two experts who weighed the benefits and risks for the National Academy of Sciences. I can imagine this launching climate wars. Some third party might actually get to the point where the climate in their part of the world had become intolerable, and they would unilaterally decide to modify the planet's climate without consulting with anyone. And we'll speak with the executive director of Sunrise, a movement of young people working to stop climate change, about whether it's time to consider what to do if all else fails. I understand the desperation. I understand the urgency 
I understand that we need to kick everything into high gear. So stay with us. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Chapter 1. Climate Crisis To get up to speed about the climate crisis, I went down to Washington, D.C. to visit one of the nation's leading scientists, someone I know well. So my name is Marsha McNutt. I am a marine geophysicist. As a geophysicist, what's the coolest thing you've been involved in? There are so many cool things that geophysicists get to do. I've been down to the bottom of the ocean to see volcanoes erupting on the seafloor. I got to stand on the South Pole on the 100th anniversary of Amundsen's first conquest. I have been to Outer Mongolia with nomadic tribesmen studying the birth of mountain belts. Geophysicists get to go a lot of very unusual places and do very wonderful things. Marsha McNutt has been a professor at MIT, head of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, director of the U.S. Geological Survey, and the editor-in-chief of Science, the nation's leading scientific journal. Today, she's president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, an institution created by Abraham Lincoln in 1863 to advise the U.S. government. It prepares major reports on crucial scientific questions facing the country. I wanted to talk to Marsha McNutt 
because just before becoming president of the Academy in 2016, she chaired the Academy's report on climate intervention. And I also talked to another of the authors of that report. My name is Ray Pierre Humbert. I'm the Halley Professor of Physics at the University of Oxford. I hadn't met Ray before. He's a dead ringer for Santa Claus. He's also an expert in planets, not just our own planet, but also exoplanets, the thousands of planets outside our own solar system. My favorite planet is 55 Cancri E, which is so hot it has a permanent lava ocean on the day side. And where's that located? Uh, it's, it's around the star 55 Cancri, which is not quite a visible star, but it's near the claw, one of the claws of the scorpion, Scorpio. And that's your favorite planet. Well, it's the, it's the one we're having the most fun with right now. I see. Not so, the vacation on. Not it's not a it's not one of the vacation sites unless you like uh, lava beaches and so forth. So, I talked with Marsha and Ray about the current state of climate science. Now I shouldn't have to say this, but just in case you've been living on an exoplanet or in a state of deep denial, there's no serious question that climate change is real or that it's largely due to excess carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels causing a greenhouse effect. Here's the science in a nutshell. A greenhouse lets you grow greens in Green Bay, Wisconsin in the middle of the winter because the glass lets light pass through but holds the heat in. The thicker the glass, the better the heat retention. CO2 does the same thing for the Earth. It lets sunlight pass but retains much of the resulting heat. CO2 has been increasing sharply over the past century to levels unprecedented in human history, and as a result, the Earth is getting hotter. The last six years rank as the six hottest years in recorded history. There is a lot more attention to global warming amongst the public and the press and, and amongst politicians. Now that we are starting to see some of the effects what we've seen with just about a degree of warming is nothing compared to what you get with the second degree of warming. Swaths of Puerto Rico underwater. Roads turned to raging rivers. Millions of people affected by devastating floods across South Asia. Historic fires devastating Australia. More than 100 wildfires burning in the Arctic. Firefighters in California continuing to battle some dangerous, fast-moving wildfires. Five of the six largest infernos in state history. Because of the release of CO2, into the atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels primarily, we are entering basically an unknown regime of rapidly changing climate. It is very difficult for anyone looking at the data to say with any confidence that in this future that we are entering will continue to be conducive for human habitation. Once you enter that zone, you basically can't back up. The die is already cast. And every projection shows that we have at most decades to act. And what are the sort of events we expect to happen as, as we have more and more CO2 in the atmosphere? What do we see happening now and what do we imagine happening in the future? So what we see happening now are things like ice sheets melting, sea level rising, more energy in the atmospheric system, which leads to more storminess, higher amounts of rainfall, 
stronger hurricanes, areas of the country that used to be pleasant to live in now becoming uninhabitable because of storm surge and uh, high tides. We're seeing death of coral reefs because the ocean's too warm for them. Some of the things that are more complicated but likely to be far more damaging are the longer droughts, the interactions between ecosystems, things like the bloom in plankton coming earlier in the spring when the animals that need to feed on them haven't yet returned from their migration. So you basically get uh, animals dying of starvation. Chapter 2. The Wet Bulb Temperature When scientists describe global warming, they usually talk about average temperature rise. For example, take the 2016 Paris Climate Agreement. That's the U.N. agreement supported by 194 countries, but sadly no longer including the United States. It aims to keep the average global temperature rise below 2 degrees Celsius. The problem is that an average temperature rise of 2 degrees Celsius sounds puny, even if you convert it to roughly 4 degrees Fahrenheit. After all, temperatures can fluctuate by 20 degrees Fahrenheit over the course of a day. What's the big deal? I worry that we as scientists have perhaps done a disservice to climate change by talking about average changes, because the average doesn't sound so bad. But when you talk about how the extremes are likely to change, that is when it gets very scary. One of the aspects of climate change that scares me the most is if instead you measure climate change by how many days in a certain location is the temperature likely to exceed the wet bulb temperature? What's the wet bulb temperature? It's basically the difference between life and death. Your body is always generating heat, and to keep your body at a constant temperature, you need to radiate away the excess heat. If you can't, you'll die. On a cool day, it's no problem. Your skin can lose heat directly to the air. But on a hot summer day, you need to sweat so the evaporation carries away the heat. Now, if the temperature and the humidity get too high, a person literally can't sweat enough to cool themselves. What's the limit? Well, at 50% humidity, you can't make it much past 112 degrees in the shade. So unless that person can get to some place that's air-conditioned, they will literally overheat and suffer heat stroke. There are many places on this planet right now, in India, Southeast Asia, Africa, where the number of days that are exceeding the wet bulb temperature are going up dramatically every summer. We're even seeing life-threatening temperatures across temperate zones in Europe, with record highs recorded in Germany, Netherlands, Britain, and France, with the latter hitting roughly 115 degrees Fahrenheit. So a better way to think about the effect of climate change might be the number of days 
that a region becomes uninhabitable outdoors. If you go from, say, one degree of warming to two degrees of warming, a lot of the damages scale linearly. If you used to have, say, something like 30 days of um, life-threatening heat waves in some place, we go to something like 60 days when you go to, uh, to two degrees. What would happen if we blow past two degrees Celsius? It's more like a global rise of four degrees Celsius. If you get to four or five degrees global mean warming, then you get to the situation where perhaps uh, half of the earth becomes uninhabitable outdoors for mammals. Then air conditioning becomes not a matter of comfort, but a matter of life support. It's like living in a, in a space station. And um, a uh, power failure becomes not just a matter of inconvenience, but mega death. Of course, most people on Earth don't have access to homes with air conditioning. It's these people who will suffer. Uh, And then you also have to think about um, all the animals that are not going to be living in air conditioning. What happens to elephants? What happens to cattle? It's It's a very different world. Unfortunately, we're not making much progress on reducing CO2 emissions. By almost all scientific accounts, if we don't drastically change our fossil fuel consumption, we're going to blow past the target of two degrees in the Paris Agreement. The problem is it's really hard and really slow to change the world's energy systems. To move to renewables requires electrifying your energy system. That, that's really the only realistic way to do it. Electrifying the system requires building transmission lines. My home's in California. It can take three years just to permit a new transmission line. Replacing power plants takes even longer since they're designed to last for decades. Power grids generally evolve over a 40-year time scale. So this is why many scientists and many policymakers are concerned about taking an infrastructure system that has a 40-year renewal rate and trying to respond to a problem that needs immediate action. Here's where the volcano strategy comes in. We've already tampered with our atmosphere and we're starting to feel the consequences. Why not tamper some more to prevent some of the warming, saving lives and curbing suffering? That's the idea behind this type of climate intervention. Is it time to start experimenting with the technology? You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, Check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further 
at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Chapter 3. Tiny Space Mirrors I arranged to speak with Professor David Keith. He's one of the leading proponents of solar geoengineering research, and he's aiming to run a small-scale test. David agreed to bicycle down from Harvard to the other end of Cambridge, where I work at the Broad Institute. So solar geoengineering can, with total confidence, and this is not an overstatement, restore temperatures to pre-industrial. Long before David started thinking about solar geoengineering, his scientific career had an unusual start. His first job was as a research assistant in the Arctic. The year I was there, we were really working on walruses, and we were trying to learn how to identify them by their calls. And then we had to brand them with cattle brands that we bought in Alberta. And my job as the young guy was to carry the, the brands, that was the light part, and the propane tank and the kind of flamethrower-y thing that you needed to heat up the brands. I'd done way more big outside time than most people. So uh, probably more than a 1,000 kilometers of kind of... Um, Arctic ski trips, expeditions, whatever. Would you call yourself an environmentalist? Uh, <laughs> in this topic, this is such a big fight. You know, I, I feel like it's for other people to judge. But, but I'd say I've been to Earth First rallies and I've done uh, or actions. And I, um, yeah, I think the short answer would be yeah. He began studying global warming when he arrived at MIT in the 1980s. I stumbled into this really cool group of students in between Harvard and MIT, grad students who were working on climate change, both the science and public policy in an interdisciplinary way. Today, David focuses on solar geoengineering. He's mostly focused on stratospheric geoengineering, which is what we've been talking about, mimicking the behavior of a volcano by spraying reflective particles into the stratosphere. But there's actually several different ways of changing the Earth's solar radiation. There's the idea of brightening a certain kind of marine boundary layer cloud. Brighter clouds would reflect more sunlight. There's the idea of thinning a kind of cirrus cloud by adding silver iodide or something like that. Wispier clouds would trap less of the sun's heat. And then there's space-based technologies. The idea you could build big orbiting mirrors or what have you. To make a difference, space mirrors would need to be huge, with a surface area oh, about the size of Greenland. It wouldn't be cheap to get them into orbit. I think if you think in the next decades, I think the idea of space-based stuff is ridiculous. But if you're thinking about this as something humans do over a century or a century and a half, I don't think it's crazy to think that we might do space-based things. For now, though, the best approach would be stratospheric intervention, putting reflective particles into the atmosphere. 
you can think of them as tiny space mirrors, just at a lower altitude. Planes would fly around the stratosphere spraying plumes of sulfur dioxide or similar chemicals. It would be surprisingly cost-effective. The cost to kind of begin a program that's putting material quantities of stuff in the stratosphere is probably just a few billion dollars. The kind of climate damages we're talking about on a global basis are of order a trillion a year. So the idea that a few countries spend a few billion a year, that's a small enough number that I don't think that cost is going to be the direct driver. A few billion dollars to clean up a trillion dollar mess? Sounds like a pretty good deal, at least on paper. What could possibly go wrong? Chapter 4. What could possibly go wrong? When the National Research Council scientists sat down to write a report on solar geoengineering, the first thing they realized was that calling the technology solar geoengineering might be seriously misleading. I never liked the term geoengineering myself because engineering is a term we generally apply to precise management or design to control systems that we actually understand. But what is generally called geoengineering is something that is really hard to try out, hard to resolve the main questions about. This is basically throwing up these particles into the stratosphere at the whim of the jet stream. They go where they will. It's not like a house with thermostats in every room where you can turn this room a little cooler and maybe this one not so cool and turn this one off because no one really needs it in this room. So we preferred the term albedo modification, even though it sounds kind of wonky. Albedo is the scientific term for the reflectivity of a planet. Unfortunately, albedo modification wouldn't mean anything to the general public. The other extreme, some people use the term hacking the planet. There's a lot of sort of techno-optimism involved uh, in the people that are doing research on, on this, which is very similar to the sense of pride where you're hacking a system. And it is a sort of cool thing to contemplate. And if we didn't have to live on the planet, uh, I'd be really interested in it myself. But it is dealing with the only home that we have and, uh, and has potentially really very serious consequences. Ultimately, the scientists settled on the neutral term climate intervention. I like the term climate intervention because just like with interventions and in, say a person who has a drug problem or whatever, you're not guaranteed to achieve the outcome that you want. You're having an intervention because you know something is wrong, but you just can't be sure that you're not going to actually make the situation worse. But you may be so desperate that you, you really need to do something. As the scientists dug into the problem, they recognized that the perfect climate intervention would simply be to dim the sun by 1 or 2 percent. Unfortunately, though, the sun doesn't have a dimmer switch. And using particles to block the sun's rays isn't quite the same thing. You can control the average global temperature, but the impact across the globe 
may be very uneven. If you put aerosols up in the stratosphere, tiny little particles in the stratosphere, they don't just sit there where you put them. They get blown around by the stratospheric winds. They take up water and they get bigger. Bigger particles have different uh, reflective properties than smaller particles. They uh, tend to get bunched up near the poles eventually and and, uh, fall out near the poles. You don't necessarily uh, get an an equal distribution between the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. That might have serious consequences for the Earth's climate. Modeling has shown that if the uh, aerosols were to preferentially bunch up in one hemisphere, that actually shifts the tropical rainfall patterns into the opposite hemisphere. So you would actually create potentially uh, serious droughts. That's one example of the sort of thing that could go wrong uh, inadvertently. So to put it in the simplest terms, you're saying we could put up aerosols and end up completely surprised by the winners and losers in in the climate effects of that. Right. So it's hard to guess in advance how particles will distribute in the stratosphere. They might cool certain areas of the globe, but leave others vulnerable to droughts and heat waves. Moreover, it's hard to run a local field test. We can't just say, okay, we're going to albedo modify over... El Paso, Texas. And does El Paso get cooler? And what happens to El Paso's rainfall? And are there any negative effects of sulfur particles falling out of the air or anything? You can't do that. Because once I put it up over El Paso, how long before it distributes around the, the world? So most of these injections have to be done near the equator, because that's the best place for distribution. And they very quickly get into these stratospheric currents that distribute them. And within two years, it's all dissipated. It's all gone. It all filters out. So you would have to re-inject every year to two years. So one thing you can say, at least, is if you're willing to tolerate a global experiment, at least it would go away. Let's, let's pull that thread for a second. Suppose somebody were to do a global experiment for a couple of years. Now, here's the issue with doing an experiment, a global experiment on albedo modification. We have no idea how to attribute whatever might happen during those two years to the experiment itself versus natural variability in storminess, droughts, floods, whatever. And you can be sure anyone who might have been impacted during that period by a hurricane, a drought, a flood, would say, bingo, you did this experiment and I got flooded out of my house or I had a hurricane take out my barn or I had a drought that wiped out my herd of cattle. You owe me. There'd be lawsuits all over the place. There would be lawsuits all over the place. And who's going to indemnify the person who does the experiment against the lawsuits? Do you think there's any insurance company that wants to take on that policy? Chapter 5. The Big Balloon. Despite the challenges, David Keith wants to try an experiment, a very small experiment. 
He's working with a team at Harvard on a project called Scopex. So Scopex is about trying to improve our models of the way stratospheric aerosols and chemistry work in little ways that are relevant for improving understanding of the risks and efficacy of solar geoengineering. Keith and his colleagues want to send a balloon carrying particles high into the atmosphere, puff them out, and see how they disperse and reflect sunlight. How big is this balloon? Just give me a picture. Balloons are like uh, 20 meters diameter, roughly. 60 foot wide balloons going up. And what's attached to the balloon? We're building the balloon gondola, still what you call it. The gondola has two little propellers that are more to kind of move it around slowly. And it has our data system. It has the batteries to run it. It has um, it has the, the thing that generates the particles. It has a particle sensor to measure the particle size distribution. And the whole thing is on a winch, so it can winch itself up and down relative to the balloon. So the balloon will spray particles and then ride around, measuring how they disperse. The amount of material the team is going to release is actually tiny. A kilogram or something, which, for the sake of argument, that turns out to be the amount of sulfur that a commercial aircraft you would normally fly in releases at about a minute's flight. While its physical cargo is tiny, the balloon also carries with it a lot of questions about regulation, scientific knowledge, symbolic value, and possible political misuse. While there's no serious scientific case that spraying a kilogram of particles can cause any physical harm, some people still think it's very dangerous. There's a group of people, and by high-quality polling, we know this group of people is like a third of Americans, who believe that the government is already spraying toxic chemicals from airplanes uh, for mass murder or climate manipulation or something. And so those people uh, have conflated that with some of the scientific work on solar geoengineering. So when they Google around, or there's lots of sites that will have me as a mass murderer. Indeed, I once got a voicemail, my favorite one that my kids enjoyed a lot, was a, a voicemail that said that I was 10 million times more evil than Hitler and Stalin. And then it's not quite clear if the gentleman is saying that, that it's combined or, or separately. But it's not just conspiracy theorists. Even some of David Keith's friends, like Ray Pierre Humbert, are opposed to Scopex. Uh, it is actually one of the joys of science that, at least among scientists, you can have very vehement professional disagreements and still remain on good terms. What's really funny is, at least from my perspective, I have huge respect for Ray, both scientifically and actually as a human. There's an article, the most recent article he wrote, which was actually the most personal and attacking me. It was like attacking the Harvard program. I forget exactly what it said, but it was like pretty direct, you know, both uh, smoke and barrels uh, aimed my way. That was published just a few weeks after I had a wonderful dinner with him and his wife. Actually, I visited him in, in Cambridge or Oxford, and we uh, we talked about exoplanets. We talked about American politics. And we mostly actually avoided talking about this topic because we know we disagree. I uh, don't imagine that David would pay any attention to what advice I gave him, but uh, I would advise him to just drop Scopex. Ray has multiple objections. On the one hand, the experiment is too small. Releasing a few particles won't teach us anything important about the large-scale planetary processes that would matter most. I still lean towards calling them stunts in that while they have some scientific payback, they don't really address the biggest questions we have. You can't do that with just a puff experiment. If you really want to um, 
resolve some of the questions that are going to be a make or break thing for what would happen if you deployed albedo modification. Uh, there are a hundred other things that are more important scientifically. On the other hand, Ray is concerned that the experiment will open the door to ever larger solar geoengineering efforts before there are any rules in place. It's the risk that by doing a small experiment that crosses a red line, you're opening the door to escalation. If you can do a small experiment, well, next year someone's going to do a bigger experiment. It represents the thin edge of the wedge. What, what can of worms are, are you opening? But Ray's biggest concern is more fundamental. Solar geoengineering is wildly, howlingly, barking mad, and no research developments have changed my opinion one iota. Chapter 6, The Sword of Damocles. What makes Ray Pierre Humbert call solar geoengineering wildly, howlingly, barking mad? It boils down to two things. First, it doesn't solve the real problem. As long as we continue to emit CO2, it continues to accumulate in the atmosphere. Much of it remains for tens of thousands of years. And the greenhouse effect keeps increasing. Climate intervention just masks the problem by reflecting away sunlight while we keep pumping vast amounts of CO2 into the air. The second problem is solar geoengineering could create a sort of time bomb. My biggest worry, in fact, the worry that underpins all my other worries about the possibility of deploying albedo modification stems from the mismatch in timescales the mismatch in timescales is this. While much of the CO2 sticks around for tens of thousands of years, the sulfur particles that would be used for geoengineering, they disappear very quickly. They'd need to be replaced every couple of years. You're committing the entire future of humanity to doing this essentially forever. You know, when have we ever saddled uh, the next 100,000 years of civilization if, with an obligation to do something without fail each and every year forever, essentially? There's no precedent in human history. If you then stop, if you stop because there's a global war, there's a, a global depression or disputes over what the effect of this is, or you find some horrible side effect that you just can't bear. If you stop doing this albedo modification, then within about 10 years, you have nearly the full effect of all the pent-up warming from that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that's what we call termination shock. Everybody on the planet living under the sword of Damocles, uh, knowing it could fall at any minute. Exactly how much pent-up warming would depend on how much CO2 we've allowed to accumulate. A rapid warming of 2 degrees Celsius would be bad enough. A rise of 4 degrees C within a decade, making large swaths of the planet uninhabitable outdoors most of the year, that would be catastrophic. I asked Ray if he thought solar geoengineering would ever make sense. The only scenario is if you actually had already committed to uh, getting to uh, zero carbon dioxide emissions in a reasonably short window of time, or if you had developed technology for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. In other words, if we had largely solved the problem and only had to buy a little bit of time. Unfortunately, 
we're not on target to get to zero net emissions, and we're very far from having affordable technologies for carbon capture from the atmosphere. Chapter 7. Climate Wars. If the climate crisis continues to deepen, who would decide whether and when to deploy solar geoengineering? Would the United Nations try to forge a global consensus? Or, because it's not so expensive, might some nations just try to do it on their own? I can imagine some country could just start deploying albedo modification just because of their own perceived self-interest. Imagine a human nation that is seeing its elderly people dying from heat stroke. They may think putting a bunch of particles up in the air is a pretty simple solution to it. And if that means that the Canadian wheat harvest fails, well, that's their problem. I, I can imagine that conflicts that could arise when nations start tinkering with the composition of the stratosphere. Uh, I can also imagine th this launching climate wars because there are quite easy countermeasures, the uh, kinds of aircraft that would be actually um, spewing out sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. They're, they're slow moving. They're easy to target uh, by fairly simple missiles. There are other kinds of countermeasures uh, you could think of. For instance, if other countries used geoengineering to slow climate change, but Russia preferred to let the Earth keep warming because it would open the Arctic Ocean year round, Russia could interfere. All they'd have to do would be to uh, increase their coal burning, increase the CO2 to offset the albedo modification. Russia could actually even do more harmful things. Releasing methane into the atmosphere. They could um, start manufacturing sulfur hexafluoride, which is an incredibly potent long-life greenhouse gas. It turns out that the fear that countries might start acting on their own was the initial inspiration for the National Research Council report. The intelligence community was concerned that some third party might actually get to the point where the climate in their part of the world had become intolerable, and they would unilaterally decide to modify the planet's climate without consulting with anyone. Some argue that solar geoengineering is basically ungovernable. If one country wants the world slightly warmer and another needs it cooler, how could we get a global consensus about who sets the thermostat? Right now, there is no treaty. There is no international agreement. There is no governance structure that actually prevents anyone from intervening in the atmosphere or the stratosphere to perform some kind of albedo modification. The Academy has a study underway right now that is focusing on the governance issue. And hopefully they will come up with some good ideas of how to take this forward. Chapter 8. Sunrise. Given all the problems with solar geoengineering, why are scientists even considering it? The reason is they're beginning to feel pretty desperate. 
While the Paris Climate Treaty aims to keep global warming to 2 degrees C, on our current trajectory, we'll blow past that target and may barrel toward catastrophic increases. Some feel we better be ready with a break glass in case of emergency solution. But is solving climate change really hopeless? A lot of young people have been rising up lately to demand action. They think the answer will require not just science, but political pressure. 17-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg recently gained international attention for her call for a global climate strike and her demands for policy change at the United Nations. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? In the U.S., a youth-led environmental movement has been organizing to pressure politicians through sit-ins, songs, and communal action. I decided to talk to one of the leaders in what's become a global movement. My name is Varshini Prakash. I am one of the co-founders of and currently serving as the executive director for Sunrise Movement, which is organizing tens of thousands of people, predominantly young people, across this nation to make climate action a priority in our nation for the first time. So tell me how you got to that point. Like, what was your path? I am the child of two South Indian immigrants. India is a place that is being ravaged by the climate crisis, whether it's through you know drought and water wars or farmers committing suicide by the tens of thousands or, or climate-fueled floods worsening and, and impacting people. And I remember it was like the fall of 2015 when a series of really horrific floods hit my family's farm in southern India. And I remember roads and sidewalks that I had walked on that my dad and had grown up on just covered in feet of water and seeing dead bodies and people walking chest deep in, in water for miles to sanctuary. And it was this major moment of reckoning, of realizing that the climate crisis was here There were people dying as a result of it. It wasn't an issue 30, 40, 50 years in the future. And the movements that we had in that moment were not growing or weren't as powerful as we needed them to be to address this crisis. Varshini joined a group of young climate activists who wanted to drive big change. We embarked on this process for almost a year of strategic planning, of research, of study, of an assessment of the field studying things like the civil rights movement, queer movements, uh, women's suffrage, Vietnam War era movements, and then contemporary movements as well, like the movement for black lives, Occupy Wall Street, others, to see how do people make these grand societal transformations that we need to make to stop climate change, and how do we emulate that? Out of this work came Sunrise Movement, which aims to bring together millions of people, especially young people, As you may have heard, they've proposed a program called the Green New Deal. One important element of the program is funding innovation to drive down the cost of renewables to the point where they're cheaper than fossil fuels. But the aims of the Green New Deal are far more ambitious. 
it can be thought of as a, a decade-long economic mobilization, really, to stop climate change at a scale not seen since World War II. Everything from stopping climate change to creating tens of millions of good, high-paying jobs, virtually eliminating poverty in the process, everything from addressing agriculture systems to industry to um, power generation and land use, forestry, everything under the sun that we would need to deploy to address the crisis. It won't be just one piece of legislation. And it was the same way with the New Deal. It wasn't, there wasn't a New Deal bill. There were hundreds of bills and and projects that FDR and others implemented, they were really embracing this ethos of experimentation, of doing whatever it takes to to get Americans out of the Great Depression and put money back in the pockets of working people. The Green New Deal resolution is more of a framework than a specific piece of legislation at this point. Still, the idea has prompted a range of concerns. Climate change deniers belittle it. They want to take your pickup truck. They want to rebuild your home. They want to take away your hamburgers. This is what Stalin dreamt about but never achieved. Many scientists and economists view achieving carbon neutrality within 10 years as a pipe dream, given the slow rate at which power plants are replaced. Others think it's trying to do too much, solve climate change, poverty, and racial injustice all at the same time. But maybe the Sunrisers are onto something very important in the way they're building a coalition. Packaging them as one thing, this sounds sort of counterintuitive to some people, but it actually makes it more popular. The parts of the Green New Deal that are the most popular are the parts around job creation, are the investments in sustainable agriculture and renewable energy technology. Barshini contrasted the Sunrise Movement's approach to previous climate change legislation efforts, like the Waxman-Markey bill in 2009. The last 40 years of focusing on just like a a singular tax or a singular cap-and-trade model or something that people cannot understand as making basic improvements to their lives, that's why a lot of the reason why Waxman-Markey failed in the Senate 10 years ago. Because... There wasn't the public will and the public support. She talked to Senator Markey, who sponsored both the 2009 bill and now the Green New Deal resolution. I asked him, what is the major difference that you are seeing in 2019 versus, you know, 2009? And he said the number one difference and what we need so badly is that we actually have an army of people out there pushing for these solutions. I asked Marsha McNutt what she thought about Sunrise Movement. I love it. I think it's critical. I mean, if it's not going to be that generation, then who? They're the ones that are going to still be alive in 2050. It's not going to be me. And it's going to be their children that are going to be alive in 2100 that are going to be inheriting this parched earth. It's incredibly important that they stand up and say, no, this is not the trajectory that I want for the planet. And when politicians vote with a two-year time horizon, 
in their mind or if they vote special interest groups who are looking only at their corporation one-year ROI, that is absolutely criminal. So what would you say to the people in the Sunrise Movement? What, what encouragement or, or message would you say to them? I, I would say they are just like the people who stood up to the Vietnam War and every other injustice. You know, this is an injustice to all of humanity. So after talking with Varshini about Sunrise Movement, I asked her whether she and her fellow activists thought solar geoengineering might be an important tool in addressing climate change. She was unconvinced, regarding the technology as a distraction from solving the real problem. If the issue is decarbonizing and the long-term problem is taking carbon out of the atmosphere, things like geoengineering don't even do that. But And so don't get me wrong, I understand the desperation, I understand the urgency, I understand that we need to kick everything into high gear, but I think like we are putting carbon into the atmosphere. Perhaps the easiest fix that we have is to stop putting carbon into the atmosphere. Chapter 9. The Moral Hazard. I understand why climate change activists want to stay laser-focused on decarbonizing the world's energy supply. But at the same time, is there any harm in also having climate intervention as a backup? Unfortunately, the answer is, there might well be. Some people worry that pursuing solar geoengineering in parallel might actually make it harder to get the world to solve climate change. Humans tend to address problems only when they feel the consequences, such as heat waves, wildfires, floods, and hurricanes. If blocking the sun decreases natural disasters caused by global warming, will we become complacent about solving the real problem? It's like taking a painkiller instead of actually having the cancer taken out. Eliminating one of the symptoms of carbon dioxide emission, which is the planet getting warmer, makes it easier to ignore the root cause of the problem and just continue emitting. This is what economists call the moral hazard problem. The idea that people who have insurance against disasters aren't as careful about avoiding risks. For example, because the government provides flood insurance for homes on floodplains, homeowners are more willing to keep rebuilding their flooded homes on the same sites. But David Keith is worried about something even more insidious, that the mere prospect of solar geoengineering will be used as a political weapon to deny the need to act on climate change. At the beginning of this episode, I noted that some of the greatest enthusiasm in Congress for solar geoengineering has come from climate change deniers. That's certainly no accident. People are terrified that if these ideas get out more in the big world, that they will be seized upon by opponents of climate action, by oil companies, by people who want to block emissions cuts. Those people will claim falsely that solar geoengineering means we don't need to cut emissions or that it may mean we don't cut emissions, and they'll use that in the bruising political fight over emissions cuts. That is the underlying, I think, biggest fear. And you, you sure that fear? Of course. It's a completely legitimate fear. I'm terrified about it. The certainty that they will try and use it as an argument is there. But that doesn't mean that necessarily humanity will do less emissions cuts. And in the end, those of us who want emissions cuts just have to win on the merits. Although David Keith is certain his work will be misused by some politicians, 
he believes it's essential to do the research. I still think that that fear is not a reason not to know more. You may think, or some in your audience to this podcast may think that solar geoengineering is a terrible idea and never should be done. Others may think it really could be part of the way we manage climate change. But let me let you all out there in podcast land in on a big secret. We're not deciding now whether or not this happens. We're deciding whether we give the next generation realistic information. If we keep the taboo going, then we'll hand them basically no information. So sometime in the next decades, some government, maybe the Chinese government after their monsoon fails, maybe the U.S. government after a massive Category 5 hits New York, maybe the Indonesian government after a big heat wave that kills a quarter million, some government is going to seriously consider this. And my view is that we'd be better to give them lots of knowledge before they consider it. But Ray Pierre Humbert doesn't buy it. So David likes to make the case that if we don't do these experiments, we'll just be giving the gift of ignorance to the future. But sometimes the gift of ignorance is a precious gift. And so we have to decide first whether this is a case where the gift of ignorance is precious or a burden. I think if it had been possible to actually give the gift of ignorance about horrible things like nerve gas if it had been possible to have the gift of ignorance about building hydrogen bombs, whether or not that would have been feasible or not, that would have been a nice kind of ignorance to have. And again, I'm not saying that necessarily albedo modification is in the same category as these things, but someone has to make that judgment, and it has to be made by by civil society in some way. So where do you draw the line? I, I think that it would be impractical to have any form of governments that forbid computer experimentation. But when it comes to stuff, kit, gear, either lab experiment, but especially outdoor experimentation, actually stuffing things into the atmosphere, even on a small scale, there is a kind of a clear line there. And so that's where I think there needs to be some kind of discussion. You know, is this a red line worth crossing? Is the scientific payback enough to uh, actually justify crossing this red line? Conclusion. Choose your planet. So there you have it. Solar geoengineering. It could cool the planet, at least on average. It might buy time and mitigate suffering. But its precise impacts would be uneven and unpredictable. And it's very hard to test. There could be big winners and losers. It could even trigger climate wars. If we choose climate intervention, we might end up addicted for thousands of years, threatened with rapid, massive temperature increases if we ever stopped. If we don't consider climate intervention, we might find ourselves without options as temperatures keep rising in the decades ahead. Should we start experimenting now so that we'll know enough to be ready? Or is it a distraction, or even worse, a gift to climate change deniers who'll use the prospect of solar geoengineering to keep us from solving the real problem? So the question is, what can you do? A lot, it turns out. You don't have to be an expert, and you don't have to do it alone. If enough people get engaged, together we will make wise choices. Invite friends over for dinner and debate about what we should do or organize a conversation for a book club, or a faith group, or a campus event. Online, of course, for now. In person, when it's safe. 
And if you hate having to consider these choices about solar geoengineering, then join a group to help stop climate change before it's too late. You can find lots of resources and ideas at our website, bravenewplanet.org. It's time to choose our planet. The future is up to us. And my kids still debate whether I'm, their dad is more evil than Hitler and Stalin or Hitler and Stalin combined. That's good to know what the family debates are. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. Brave New Planet is a co-production of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, Pushkin Industries, and the Boston Globe, with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Our show is produced by Rebecca Lee Douglas with Mary Dew. Theme song composed by Ned Porter. Mastering and sound design by James Garver. Fact-checking by Joseph Fridman, Anna Stitt, and Ian Chant. Special thanks to Christine Heenan and Rachel Roberts at Clarendon Communications, to Lee McGuire, Kristen Zarelli, and Justine Levin-Allerhand at The Broad, to Mia Lobel and Heather Fain at Pushkin, and to Eli and Edie Broad, who made The Broad Institute possible. This is Brave New Planet. I'm Eric Lander. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.